I'm Debbie Travis. And I'm Tommy Smythe. And this is Trust Me, I'm a Decorator. So today we have Sophie Donaldson. So like us, she's also an expert in the home design and decorating space. She's an incredible speaker, a brand strategist, an author, an editor. We're going to be talking about a bunch of her work today, but most importantly, including her new book, Uncommon Kitchens, which I am actually legitimately obsessed with. And I'm not just saying that because she's joining us today. This is a revolutionary approach to the most popular room in the house. So we're going to explore a little bit of that with her. I want you to welcome my friend, Sophie Donaldson. Hi, Sophie. Hi, guys. Hi, Debbie. Nice to meet you. Hi, Sophie. Nice to meet you, too. Yeah, quite a career you've had. Pleasure to be here, and I uh, know your work very well, Debbie. And yeah, excited to meet you in person over the internet. And I'm so excited to introduce these two women I admire who also are Montreal transplants. So Debbie came from England to Montreal many, many years ago. Sophie, you are a New York to Montreal transplant. So I love this Canadian connection that you both have, even though you're from the United States and the UK, respectively, originally. And Montreal is one of my absolute favorite cities. So I want to set this conversation up by saying that one of the kitchens featured in Uncommon Kitchens is Sophie's own Montreal kitchen, which was shot by Patrick Biller, my partner. He's right upstairs right now. And I got to see that kitchen in person. And there was something really connective about the way that that kitchen vibes with the way that Debbie's old Montreal kitchen felt as well. This is a house full of people. It's a well-used room in the house. There's a ton of chaos happening. We got rid of a little of it for the photo shoot, but it's a real home. And Sophie, I want you to talk a little bit about what your personal approach to that room was because it just had so, it was so packed with personality and color, but everything just worked. I did work with a decorator, a, a great decorator here named Celia Bryson. And people should know that I am not a decorator. You should trust me anyway, because <laughs> never trust you. <laughs> I've spent 20 years of my career in magazines um, and writing and working with brands, uh, interviewing and working with truly the best decorators and architects in the world. And it's been such a privilege and continues to be. And you two get added to the list there. Um, so, yeah, I was a longtime editor of House Beautiful magazine uh, in the United States and have worked for or written for most of uh, the U.S. shelter and design magazine publications. And so that is how I received my kind of design understanding. And that plus what somebody recently referred elegantly to as intuitive design, which I think really just means knowing yourself well enough to put a room together and feel pretty good about it. And for me, that means also knowing that it can change. And that, I think, is a big distinguishing point between my work and my writing for um, high-end magazines and when you talk to professionals about creating a space. And then when I talk to just people, <laughs> people with houses that are doing the best they can to put something together. And so this kitchen that I worked on uh, in Montreal in my own home was a pretty good example of me trying to apply some of the design acumen I have from very, very brilliant sort of sources along with just what sort of feels right for me. So that was the experiment. And it was during this renovation that I got a little frustrated about kitchen design um, and was felt a little bit limited and started looking around and thought there must be another way. I think there's other ways of thinking about that. And that's how the research of the book came together. Yeah, I think the kitchen's really, obviously, the most fascinating room in the house, not only because, like everybody says, you know, it's the hub, but it's also the history of the kitchen. So I'm sitting in a tiny cottage, which is my kind of pied de terre, if you will, in London, where, you know, I've kind of knocked it through. So it's kind of, you know, it's a long, thin little 1802 house. But the kitchen would have originally been a tiny space at the back because it was very unglamorous to spend your time in the kitchen in the old days. And this is the type of house that would not have had a maid or anybody like that. So a larger London house would have had a basement with the big kitchen in it where the staff were. And then it would have had a parlor at the front, a small kind of living room parlor where the priest would come around kind of thing. And then over the years, you know, this is 200 years old, it's, it's kind of morphed into what I've done, which is today's type of kitchen, right? And it's really more like, I would say, a condo with the large kitchen. And the kitchen is actually three times the size of the living area, which is very small. But then when you see what you're doing with this book, which I, I think is fascinating, in a way, it's like coming around again, where a lot of people have tried this over the years, but I think it's intimidating, where you have 
pieces of furniture. If you think of the, the 90s white sterile kitchens, the big thing then was to see no handles, no antiquing, no whatever. And it's taken a lot of courage for people to say, okay, well, why don't we have on one wall Granny's armoire, you know, or build around these pieces so it's very independent. Because I think at one point, not that long ago, all kitchens pretty much looked the same, didn't they? They, they were just, whether they were high-end or, you know, low-end, they were a modular type of room. And now we're putting our imprints on. And with a kitchen, to me, an imprint is how you're going to use it and who your family is. Yeah, and I think you're right. I would say the last 30 or 40 years are the aberration, right? That's the difference is that the kitchen got very uniform after, let's say, after the 50s, after the wars, and when mass manufacturing came in and said, let's create this uniform fitted kitchen where everything is attached to one another. And this was something really like truly driven by manufacturing and sort of, I mean, the rise of plastics and the rise of formica and these these materials that got sort of, you know, trendy because it was about American industry, quite frankly. But a kitchen as unfitted, which is how they began, which was that this was a room meant for cooking. And I'm going back now hundreds of years, but up until, you know, there's a lot of kitchens that still look like this, where the cabinetry began as cupboards, right? They were freestanding units that just held dishware. Um, you always had a hearth and it was around there. The reason that there was a comfy chair in the kitchen is that the kitchen wasn't so separated from the living space because if you were attending to a pot of soup without induction or timers or smart technology, you were by the soup for a lot of the day. You know, that's what life looked like for a lot of people for many, many centuries. Shedding peas. That's right. And, and so, you know, I look at British kitchens still, which this trend kind of came, you know, over Instagram, this, you know, Beata Human and these other you know, designers, Matilda Goad was in there. Um, a lot of them actually coming from from Northern Europe and, and from Britain and looking at these kind of older homes where the unfitted kitchen was a necessity because you were building around a range. You know, Americans will say that we, we think all Brits have an aga, you know, burning it at all hours of the night. It's, you know, we keep that fantasy in our head. Um, but then you have a kitchen table instead of an island. And that was just because that's what it was. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a styling. It wasn't a big, you know, kind of stylistic flex, right? It was just a kitchen table serves a lot of purposes. You can chop on it. You can sit at it. You can do homework at it. You can, you know, spread a project out on it. You could do art on it. And the kitchen is such a multi-purpose room. And that this, I think that that unfitted kitchen style really, really speaks to that because you can add the pieces as they make sense for you. That not everybody needs, you know, high stools at an island are terrible for small children. It becomes this thing that Shelter Magazine sort of we showed again and again these kind of ways of, you know, what a what a glamorous or a beautiful or sophisticated or sort of a next generation kitchen looked like. But the truth is that, you know, families and individuals have to make that decision for themselves. Yeah. And the stools were always lined up perfectly. And any mother, it's like, my stools have never looked like that, you know, because <laughs> you're always falling over them, right? Because kids just tend to not be huge. There's a designer, Katie Rosenfeld, in, in the book that calls them ducks in a row. And that it's a super unnatural way to sit with friends. I mean, you're like, you know, it's like a diner, right? You're like turning your neck to, you know, angle to the right, you know, 90 degrees to the right to talk to somebody. And it's like, no, people scooch their, their stools out. They turn them to be near each other. If you look at a bar, that's how it works. And it's much more natural to sit around a table or at least around the corner of an island. So there's all sorts of things that sort of look right and they photograph well. And yeah, Tommy, I'm always happy to sort of, you know, play and tussle with Patrick about sort of what makes a great photograph for design yeah. magazines and how we're fed that information. We're fed that over Instagram. And then it's like, how does it actually live? And if you look at how, you know, you're like, oh my God, eight bar stools, I could fit everybody I love there. And I'm like, it will never be used that way. No, it never is. You will never see even six people lined up that way. You know, Robin no. Primack in the book also brings that up. It's like people find their way and Anyway, the, there's a real beauty and also the ad hoc situation, which is pulling up a chair or leaning around a too small island when there's too many people. And that drives a sort of intimacy and experience that we look for in kitchens. And so when you over serve it with design, you're losing a lot of the magic there. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And the practicality, right? I mean, you have to imagine, I think when you when I did my Italian kitchen, because I found it so intimidating and, I, you know, I'm not a designer like Tommy, I found it very scary because I knew it was a semi-professional kitchen. It really was going to be used. 
And so I worked with um, a company called Bartel in Florence who do, you would freak out if you saw these kitchens. They're, they're, they are exactly what you have in your book, pieces of furniture, and but they still have to work. You know, they still have to have the formation of a kitchen. And we filmed it. And there's a scene in there where David, this very elegant, gorgeous Italian, I said, I want a five meter long counter. And he says, nobody has a five meter long counter. And I said, well, I do. So I think by then I was sobbing. I hold retreats there. I want to see women with their glass of Prosecco rolling out their pasta. I want to hear the laughter. And I want, and of course, Tommy's envisioned that now. I was very bullish and I got my five meter long countertop. And when it arrived, you couldn't open the fridge because it was too long. And it was black. It was black volcanic stone from the north of Italy. And it looked like a runway. I mean, it was the ugliest thing. <laughs> and you couldn't get in the fridge. You had to kind of crawl under the... Anyway, so, so we had to... We had to re, and he was right and I was wrong as usual. Um, but, but I think it's just a matter of, you know, when you're doing a kitchen, you're thinking, okay, where, like you said, where are the kids doing their homework? How am I stacking the dishwasher? Where are the plates being piled up? Where am I going? You know, you reenact it in your head and stand there like a conductor doing it before you do anything. And then you try and make that vision kind of work. I mean, I think that's the most fascinating thing about sort of writing about design and about, you know, living and ingesting the design media is, is exactly what you said. You had a vision for what you wanted it to feel like. And I think that's an incredible place to start. But then there needs to be a bit of a dialogue because actually, how are women going to go visit each other and check in and out if they can't weave in and out of a space that's, you know, if you have to walk down the runway and around, you might not, you know, it might not actually bode that same interaction. And so I think talking with design professionals or talking with friends or just visiting kitchens and seeing what did work, right? Is it two islands that are, you know, flanked near each other? Or is it, you know, a table that can be moved or a table with leaves, which of course is, you know, we grew up with things like that. And it was sort of a pain in the ass taking the leaves out, you know, for a big holiday. But but it actually serves a huge purpose, which is that you can have an intimate space for a lot of the year when it makes sense. And then you grow your space, you grow your kitchen in, in a family house as it works out. But yeah, I do, I do find the chatting about sort of what the intention is and then how does design help you realize it? There's just so much room there, you know? I think there's a lot to unpack in terms of, you know, reverse engineering the process in the way that you're both talking about, where you have to ask yourself one question first which is how do I want to live in the space? And I want to mention, Sophie, that there is a parallel, you know, to be drawn between the uncommon kitchen and the uncommon life. And, you know, at home, domestic life, how do you want your domestic life to look and feel? And do you want it to be common and, you know, the same as your neighbors? Or do you want it to be uncommon and unique and really specific to you and your own family and the life that you're living? It's a question that we should ask. And, and also, there's no wrong way to do it. You know, a beautiful white kitchen that is seamless and paneled where you don't see anything. I call it like PWK, like a perfect white kitchen or like the Clorox kitchen. Like like a lab. Like a lab or like it smells like Clorox wipes to me, um, which is, <laughs> you know, a turn on for some people. Like I know people that yeah. find that very erotic, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. It's just what it's a, it's a way of being, you know, and my way of being isn't that, you know, and I, I found that there were a lot, a lot of design media that pointed to that kind of perfect approach and that we knew how to do it and we could do it at the highest end of the market and you could do it. I mean, we throw out Ikea as the low end, but they make a fabulous kitchen, you know, they do. and they really have perfected that. And it's anyway, so you can do it. That felt like established and we knew how to do that. And so the book was to say, Got it. We definitely know where to go for a perfect white kitchen. We've got all the tools and the resources. But what about the rest of us? And what about the rest of the ideas? I know a lot of people listening are probably listening in their kitchen, looking around going, oh, God, oh, God. You know? <laughs> totally. Okay. And, and, and in, in a lot of cities, people are living in apartments and condos. Absolutely. So that's a very, and they're getting smaller, aren't they? They're getting smaller and smaller and smaller, These, especially the kitchen. So let's say you've got a single girl listening and she's going, oh, God, well, I bought this off the builders kind of thing. It came with Absolutely. it. What can you do with most condo kitchens aren't probably terribly warm looking. Um, and maybe you can't touch it. Maybe you can't rip something off the wall and put your other thing. So what would you do to kind of liven up that kind of galley kitchen? 
Sure. I mean, it's a it's a, a one sentence answer, which is treat it like any other room in the house. So if you were in your bedroom or your living room, what would you do? You might find textiles that could be interesting. So that could be, you know, people don't think to put curtains or a cafe curtain or even like a real curtain. By the way, they can be laundered. People freak out about curtains and rugs and kitchens. It's like, just toss it in the wash. It's not a big deal, you know? And you don't have to get something high-end that's going to get ruined by smoke or grease. It's like, it's okay to get some panels, again, from, you know, a big box retailer or, you know, just a textile up there. Um, Art is such an obvious one. I mean, we talk a lot about that, but I don't really think people do it as much as they should. And um, there's wonderful resources for that now. And one, you know, I say, if you have like ugly cabinetry, just get one great piece of art on any wall that doesn't have cabinetry and your eye goes there, right? Sometimes it's not about fixing the problem, but about redirecting the eye. It's a very simple solution. Um, And then I think finding all of those small moments of the things that you touch and you use and enjoying them. So if it's a crock of great wooden spoons and you start to build a collection of turned wood spoons that you find in, you know, flea markets or in shops or fine on eBay, online, like you name it, um, and displaying that on your counter, like having something, you know. Tommy, scrubbing board that we brought in the market. Yes, Debbie has these things in her kitchen. If you go to her kitchen in, in Tuscany, Debbie has, you know, an old ladder and hanging on it are like garlic garlands and old scrubbing boards and textured, you know, items that are old and that have patina and that have soul. The don't cock much. The really, you know, you get them in the market. And if you're looking at an item and you can kind of, you can see the hand of a human that made it, right? You can see that the cutting board has been, you know, cut into or, um, you know, just the kind of wear on the tear. I think ceramics and um, any sort of handmade artisan wares are so beautiful to have around. Um, and to have a little bit on the counter. Some people don't like anything on the counter. That is fine. That's the Clorox people. You know, for the Clorox people, <laughs> um, <laughs> they need their own book too. Help me, I'm a Clorox person. They um, have their own book. So <laughs> they, have, they have a lot of them, but there are ways to enliven it. Like I, you know, I used to recommend the inside of your cabinets, right? You're opening and closing them all the time to get water. Like, can you put some family pictures there? Tack them up with washi tape. Your kids' art, people don't hang things on the refrigerator anymore. I'm in a big movement to bring that back. I think that that is a beautiful, the original pin board, the original Pinterest was the refrigerator. It was where there's schedules and art and, you know, thank you cards and magnets from travels. It was really, you could look at a refrigerator and kind of start to understand a family life, right? Yeah. I do that. My refrigerator is a hot mess. You can, surprise, surprise. Um, but what about the inside of cabinets, right? What about somewhere where it's a treat for just you. And there's a lot of space there and tacking things up. And, you know, especially if you're living with children, but even, you know, even a note card from my mom, if she was visiting and opened a cabinet and saw that a note that she had written me was there or the a sweet card. It's a, it's a really, it's a nice thing. And it doesn't take up a lot of kind of mental room to do something like that, you know. What about the ceiling? Because I always think people don't utilize their ceilings. So, I mean, you don't want to bring your condo ceiling down. Now you can buy, I went to somebody's condo in New York and it was so small, but they use every bit of space. And she had a little winch. So on the ceiling, you know, remember the old t- the drying racks you used to have and you used to winch it up? Yeah, like a pulley made. Mm-hmm. Which I have one in Italy and I use it all the time. But in this kitchen I saw in New York years and years ago, she put little winches up and she had baskets coming up and down. Oh. And they could be pretty, not the heavy things like books, but, you know, she could put, you know, things in that aren't used all the time, like maybe tablecloths. Uh, totally. Uh, but you had that wicker. So wicker is, to me, or, yeah. or whatever baskets are made of, is very much like, you know, old pieces of wood or old chairs. You know, it's got that warmth to it, that ochre color, which looks great against those clinical kitchens. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. I mean, putting non-kitchen things in the kitchen is a great thing, like a footstool, right, that's caned, or again, like a cool vintage. I think stools are a great, like, you can use them sort of as an extra surface. I have stools, talk about, like, the ills of like design people. It's like, how many podiums and stools does one need? All of them, yes. They're everywhere, but I put, you know, I was putting a baking rack on it the other day because I just didn't have quite, you know, enough counter space for, you know, making muffins. And so it's sort of teetering there, but it's it's allowing some flexibility in the kitchen. And also if you are an apartment dweller, let your kitchen spill out into the rest of your house a little bit. And I don't mean that you have to be, you know, preparing food um, in your dining or your living room or the nook there, but it's okay to maybe keep platters or storage or, you know, your your linens in a neat, you know, an etagere maybe on the outside of the kitchen. Like, utilize that space and let that just spill over. It's it's okay to do that. I mean, 
this is what we see uh, happening is that, you know, you Debbie initially defined this as like, oh, the kitchen's here in the living space, but the kitchen is a living space, right? I mean, we live more in our kitchens than in our living rooms. So we have to kind of make that work together. And I don't always mean that that's a great room, but you do see the kitchen spilling over into the rest of the house. The original name of this book was Unkitchens, right? This was sort of something that had been floating around the internet. And I, you know, embraced this and talked about sort of like, what is the unkitchen? You sort of got an idea right away of what that might be. And my editor smartly was like, Sophie, what people don't want is less kitchen. They want more of it. So like, we don't like the marketing. <laughs> we don't like the marketing of the book of like, here's a not kitchen book. She's like, we want like a, a kitchen kitchen book, a kitchen book yeah. for kitchen lovers. Right. <laughs> so she's like, how about, you know, it's like more, you know, it's like more kitchen. Um, but that is the idea, which is that seeping into everywhere. And so the kitchen in these modern, you know, if you're building from scratch, you're seeing you know, a back kitchen, which is like a dirty kitchen or a family kitchen inside a show kitchen. You're seeing a, a grand, you know, it used to be a dining nook or a breakfast nook is now like a true eat-in, like dining area. There's homework station. There's sort of like kitchen command center where, you know, the family is organizing what they're doing. There's, you know, a bar potentially on the outskirts of it, indoor-outdoor dining or grilling that extends from the kitchen. I mean, these become many, many square hundred feet if you're you know, looking at the latest House Beautiful Arc Digest, that's the kind of kitchen you're seeing is is where it sort of has, has taken over the ground floor of the home. Yeah, and I think I think there's I think there's this notion of abundance that we associate with kitchens that really is a food association. But I think what your book suggests in such a beautiful visual way, Sophie, is that this notion of abundance can translate into design and decor as well as into nourishment and food and cooking. And I think when you have both of those elements combined with the visual and also the taste and this multi-sensory experience, you have what feels like a really authentic kitchen. Like each of the kitchens featured in your book feels so different, but they're also, they have one thing in common and that is that they are so deeply authentic. So I wanted to ask you, for the renovators who are considering an uncommon kitchen, but who are worried about the dreaded R word, resale, what would you say to them? I mean, this is tricky. I mean, first of all, I would say is you don't resell nearly as much as you think. It's just, it's just a hard fact. The other fact is if it's a great house and if it's in you know a desirable location, it's not going to be your unusual kitchen designs. They're going to keep you from selling it. You know, it's people... Yeah. People that want a space are typically tearing out whatever the heck was in it and putting in what they want. I mean, it's a sad fact of it. I mean, that's why you have to accept that you don't know what's going to happen next. And so are you going to live more timidly for the years that you're in that house for the potential eventuality of a sale maybe down the road? It's like, no, it's absolute bullshit. I mean, that's like, you know, yeah. that's like going without for years and years in order for is something that's not even promised to you to happen. And and you, if you could create the perfect resale kitchen, you put it out there, there's no guarantee the next owner is going to keep it. In fact, they almost positively will not. So yeah. I, to me, it's just like you, you have to let go of a little bit of it. And this doesn't involve, you know, crazy decisions. I'm not asking, you know, to clad something in a really kind of like unusual turquoise marble, you know, throughout. It's, it's not... Yeah, something off-putting. It's not something, you know, off-putting or something that, you know, that even you yourself might question. I think it's... A lot of what this book asks is that the mindset that you could create a neutral kitchen that you felt safe in, that felt like it was fine for resale or felt that it was really pretty and that was nice. But then it is, don't plan it within an inch of its life. Leave a little bit of room, you know, leave a little bit of room for the imagination of decorating it or of a wall that just allows for a single piece of furniture. I've seen this again and again, you know, Emily Henderson did this. Um, Christine Flynn, who's a, a wonderful Toronto area photographer, has this in her kitchen. You're choosing one kind of beautiful, iconic piece of vintage furniture. For Christine Flynn, it was um, a pie display. So it's a big hutch. It holds yeah. her everyday kind of china. It's glass walled and it's old. You know, it's probably turn of the century. And so you get the light that pours through it. It's hulking. It has a ton of storage. And she just dedicated a wall for it. She was like, I'm going to start here. This is going to be this. And we're going to kind of build around this. Um, Emily Henderson just finished, you know, her kitchen and she chose kind of this huge work table, like probably in an old, you know, millinery or like, you know, an old shop. It's probably, you know, 12 feet long with drawers. It's wooden and on turned wood legs. And that is her island. And she start, you know, she was like, I'm going to have 
a great vintage piece and this is it and she built around it. And there's a lot of examples of this where sometimes it just starts with like one piece that you love. And and that's a starting with love is a, is a great starting place. And that could be with a tile that you've fallen in love with. I think that's really interesting because that's your memories and, and you have something you love. Like my Montreal kitchen, I did exactly that. I had a 12 foot long pine table and everything went in around it. I mean, and, and that table, when I look back, because that's where I raised my children, everything happened on that table. Absolutely. Some things that I should not know about, but found out. <laughs> One of them was conceived on that table. Another <laughs> <laughs> kids did. Uh, going from young children right through to like teenagers going out. And, and <laughs> when I used to be filming and I'd, I'd get up very early and the kids had this terrible habit of coming in from a club and, oh. you know, start oh, cooking. That's what, oh. te- your kids aren't teenagers yet, right? Oh. But they start cooking, you know, and I'm like, honestly, it's three o'clock in the morning. And, and I remember once coming down these Victoria, it was a beautiful Victorian house um, opposite Selwyn House in, in, oh. in, in Westmap. Um, and, and coming down these stairs and, and seeing this long table, there was about eight 16-year-old boys, I, I wouldn't <laughs> say they were 16 because they were quite drunk, and, 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 and they were all talking. And so I stood there, you know, with my rollers in and my, you know, nighty on and said, you've got to stop this because you're going to wake your father. And then suddenly I saw everybody look at me and the body in front of me was their father. Leading the <laughs> um, So, you know, and, and, you know, and then all the Sunday, you know, we had all our Sunday lunches in there and then the homework and then the, the sobbing. And then, you That's know, I'd come back from the set and be peeling potatoes and somebody, no, finish your homework. And what? Well, because somebody had not some done the potatoes and other thing, you know. And, and I didn't even have time to wash my hands when I came in. I was covered in pain. Those are the most precious memories. And what is so wonderful now as they're even older than that, is I hear them telling their, their friends and their spouses, you know, and it's always about that kitchen table. It's never about a cupboard. It's about what happened at that kitchen table. There is a bit of, I mean, that is like kind of the point, you know, of design for me is just the kind of power of like, if you build it, they will come. Like that if you create an environment and you do a pretty good job at it, it almost inevitably will have experiences collect in it. Yeah, I just, I, I find so much beauty in that and so much possibility. And it doesn't take a renovation, I guess, is what I'd like people to know too. Like these stupid stools and these like vintage little things they have kicking around the house. A couple of them were just, you know, in the kitchen the other day. And I, you know, after, for me, it was like after baseball practice and we often host pizza or just like, it's like a trough of pizza, right? And the children come, but the, you know, the moms will stay and dads and we'll drink some wine and have some pizza once the, you know, the feet, once the feeding is done, <laughs> it's like disgusting. <laughs> the the people co- people collected in the kitchen because there were seats and they weren't they weren't there permanently they happened to be there at the moment and I just saw like it is such a universal place where nobody feels uncomfortable this is what's so incredible to me is that if you go to a stranger's house it's often not the sitting room the den or the study that you might go you might go outside that's sort of a comfortable place to be if there's a patio available but leaning in a kitchen or perching in a kitchen island or sitting at a kitchen table is something that lots of people can feel comfortable with. In my book, I say like you can bring like uh, a construction worker or a member of the clergy or a toddler or, you know, somebody from your book club. Like any of these people are a fine person to have in the kitchen, but they're not necessarily folks that you'd have, you know, sitting in your living room and feeling in a more formal environment. It's just it's so welcoming and it's just it's such a great kind of idea to glom onto. I love that. We've got more to say on that. Be right back. This episode sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, Tommy Smythe here. Thank God I have a few minutes to myself without my co-host. <laughs> I mean, you've been there. You've been overwhelmed before too. I think most people carry around some kind of stress. And here at the Trust Me Pod, it's, Debbie, did you put your devices on Do Not Disturb? Debbie, do you have your microphone? (laughs) And when we have a guest, I just hope to get in one little question. Listen, sometimes it's hard to keep all your feelings all bottled up because you know what happens when you do. It bubbles over, you lose your cool, and maybe you take it out on someone you love. Obviously, I love Debbie. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. 
If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient and flexible. Whether you're in Toronto or Tuscany, BetterHelp will fit your schedule. Get it off your chest. Visit betterhelp.com slash decorator to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash decorator. I'm Sarah Burke, and I host the Women in Media podcast, where I'm exploring the challenges women face in the media spotlight and celebrating our triumphs. My guests come from radio, TV, news, and sports, and we'll cover topics like leadership, diversity, stereotypes, and more. Most of all, I'm looking to build a community through a space where we can discuss anything. The Women in Media podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womeninmedia.ca. often say when I have these conversations with clients about how they want to live in their kitchen, how their family likes to use a kitchen, when the resale thing comes up, which is sort of what started this conversational thread, I always say to them, you know, I don't understand why people, and this is just my opinion, why people would want to renovate their homes for the next family that's going to live there (laughs) rather than for the family that is living there. You're like, I thought we were talking about you. (laughs) Actually... Yes, that one phrase will cause people usually to go away. Sometimes they're very resistant in the moment, but very often three days later or a week later or two weeks later when we have our next meeting about it, they'll let me know that that comment resonated with them in a deep enough way that they may have decided to go in a slightly more authentic and and more interesting direction with these big investment rooms. And I think the reason people are so afraid of them is because they can be so expensive. We all know how expensive an appliance package can be, how much stone countertops or or quartz composite countertops can be. And applying hard-earned after-tax dollars to those kinds of things is reasonably intimidating for people. No, it's super stressful. Do you know in Europe, when you sell a house, um, you take everything with you. You take the appliances. You take that's right. Everything. And that is why they're unfitted, Tommy. Shut up. Really? How do I not know that? You can take the light bulbs if you want, but you take the stove. That's normal. Mm-hmm. What? You take your fridge. Jackie, our nutritionist, has just sold. She lived two streets over from me. She's a very close friend of mine that Tommy knows, who is an amazing nutritionist, and we had on the podcast. And she's bought in the country where she has an arga, but she wanted another stove. Because the agar, you know, you, sometimes you're having it on all the time because you're feeding it wood and stuff like that. I mean, it's a country place. But she didn't want to lose this agar, which they left it because to get them out of the house, you virtually need a crane. You need like a crane. Oh my yeah. God. Exactly. So she wanted to take her standard stove with her. And I said, I was flabbergasted. I said, what, you, you're just going to take it? You can't do that. She said, oh, I'm taking everything. I'm taking some of the cabinets. But in Italy and France and Spain in Europe, you take everything. That's normal. Now you can negotiate and say, okay, I, you know, I, I don't want it anymore. But people move their kitchens from house to house. That's amazing. And so that is why they look unfitted, Tommy. That is like when we talk about yeah. the unfitted kitchen. No, but that is the yeah. that is the truth. That is literally why it happens is that you're, you can't, if you are bringing a 30-inch stove to a 36-inch place, you have yeah. a little table or a little surface that fills the gap, right? It's it's not all just interconnected like a, a manufactured kitchen is. That is why European kitchens look like that. Tommy, to the people renovating that are, you know, daunted by price, I'm going to give a piece of advice that is difficult for decorators to hear. They actually hate it. Um, but that homeowners <laughs> should push. No, it's true. But that homeowners should push back on, which is the question is, do we have to do everything? Must we scrap everything? And I, yeah. I make a huge case for this in the book. It is an environmental disaster renovation culture is. It's Agreed. disgusting. Yep. And people go, they buy homes at, that are you know in an affluent class and they look at them and they think, where do I begin gutting? What can we get rid of? And they don't ask what they should ask, which is what's worth keeping? Yep. What can we keep? What can we rehab? What can we renovate? What can we reface? What can we live with for a number of years before we really know what we want? And so they start on this kind of thing. And, and for decorators and architects, the reason that they like that is that it's easier to start with a white box. If you scrap everything, it gives ultimate control to the design industry, right? 
Yes. They are. They can do the fittings exactly how they want. They can plan it. And you don't have to work with something. It's like when somebody's like, here's my grandmother's, you know, like disgusting Rococo, like, you know, console. And you're like, oh boy, where is this going to yeah. go? You know, like, how do we how do we work this in? It takes a little bit of brain power and it takes a lot of creativity. And some designers are up for the challenge and others are not. They, not everybody's good at that. You're quite right, Sophie. We do do that in other rooms in the house. There's always a painting that I hate in every home. But, <laughs> you know, like it's just something that you have to work around. And by and large, a creative person and a person with experience and know-how can work around those elements. Why do we not apply the same sorts of premises to the kitchen? And I totally agree with you. I mean, lately, we have been doing, even in very, you know, sort of expensive neighborhoods in cities that I work in, uh, rehabs and resurfacing, like refacing, replacing only countertops and fittings and hardware, uh, adding in embellishment uh, elements that actually will very effectively put a new family's stamp on an old kitchen but without throwing everything out into a landfill site and without starting from scratch, because it really is, as you say, not in every case is that necessary. And replacing old kitchens that are really tired and have been for 30 years of service that are actually falling apart is one thing. But when a family buys a house that's been, you know, lightly, cheaply renovated for resale, and then they rip that all of that material out. I mean, everybody says, well, we donated to Habitat for Humanity. That's all well and good. But it's still supporting an industry that's making more stuff. And I think that's a really, really important conversation to have. And that can be a real relief, you know, like not yeah. everything has to be done right this second. And I, and I think that there's this, you know, there's a, a bit of a feeling of like, we finally made it. We bought the house. We're going to do it. Like, you know, there is a bit of, not a bit, there's a lot of privilege in the idea that renovation is something promised to you, that a gut renovation, it feels uh, like kind of a really disastrous coming of age type thing that that people in their 40s are like, I've worked for this. It's time for yeah. me. I've worked for this I ability to it. kind of scrap everything. And, and I just think it lacks a little bit of imagination and that there can be a big relief financially and otherwise to say, we just moved in this space. I don't even know where the sun rises. You know, I don't know where yeah. where my kids are going to collect. I don't know where the, you know, the cool and like, you know, hangout room of the house is going to be or which corner of the kitchen is going to, you know, be poured with like, you know, yellow light that we're going to want to sit in. Like there is a lot to get to know in a space. And so if you have been living in a house for, you know, a long time, those are the renovations that are nice to see where it's like we want to stay here. We don't want to move. We don't want to start from scratch. But we do know ourselves. I, I see this happen with couples in their 60s and 70s where they really get it. They know exactly what they need. They know how they cook. They know how they entertain. They really have that self-knowledge that allows them um, to work with a contractor or a designer and make savvy choices because it's not just like, let me go to Pinterest and see what I like. <laughs> you yeah. I think I think you just gave me the title of my design memoir. Mm. Wait to see where the sun rises. Love that. My God. Is it a design memoir or a bit more, Tommy? I'll have to I'll have to cut you in on the profits. It's very Francis Mays. Because I think you just handed that to me on a silver platter. <laughs> so, first of all, all the decorating shows, you know, including my own, exploded because we didn't have the budget to rip out a kitchen and put a brand new kitchen in. So we always worked Bingo. with those cabinets that we have. And that was the most amazing before and after because very often a cheap kitchen from the 70s was solid wood you know it yeah. was pine or whatever so outdated so ugly whatever but we would come in and first thing step by step show you how to strip it sand it put the primer on paint it reinvent it and that was the wow factor of okay. those decorating shows because okay. you were working with what you had. But when I bought this kitchen that we were talking about earlier in Montreal and I got that gorgeous table, all cabinets were there. And I remember somebody saying to me, you know, they're really nice quality. Why are you going to rip them out? And I said, yeah, but I want all mine. Exactly what you're saying. You know, I've worked hard for this. You know, I was 40 or something. You know, I want my own. And in the end, we changed our minds. What I did was I took all the cabinet doors off and I took them to a car dealer because my children were very hard on everything. And I had them sprayed professionally, you know, and they're still there today. That house has been sold three times since I was there. Kitchen's still there. 
That's incredible. And they're still rechanging the color with the same guy in the same car <laughs> shop. And he's being passed along because I know a very uh, well-known realtor in, um, in Montreal. And she said, Debbie, I've sold your house three times. That oh kitchen keeps changing colors, but it's the same cabinet. Now, why not? Because they don't make them as beautiful as they used to, you know, solid yeah. wood. And, you know, I'm so proud of that. I love that. The same thing, you know, you may have a laminate. How do you paint on laminate? How do you paint, you know, and you have to say, like you said, maybe this is something as a stopgap. Yep. So you've just got the house and you say, I don't want to spend a hundred grand on a new kitchen yet, but I can't bear looking at that. Okay, right. well, let's do it slowly. Maybe we paint it. Maybe it's not going to last. So I'm about to help a friend doing typical builder grade cabinets that are, you know, shaker style with a little bit too much detail, but insets of removable wallpaper from wall shop. And there is a, a pattern of um, basket weave, right? Like a like basket weave with a color on the back of it. And I, we're just going to cut out and do the inset panels of each cabinet. Gorgeous. Um, in this removable wallpaper. And it's, it's, you know, it's economical and it's going to look totally different. Yesterday in the middle of London, I was in an Uber and we were stopped at a light and the car next to us was a classic taxi from 1940. And the side of it was exactly that. The panels were original wood, you know, like rattan. Yeah, And the yeah. Uber driver was wetting himself. He's like, oh my God, uh -oh. oh my God, look at that. I said, oh, I'm sure it's not real. He said, that is an original. And I said, and he, he said, that's wood on the side of, you know, like, like what do you call it? Like a rattan? You know, like a seating that the old fight with the little square. Like caning. Yeah, or like caning. Like caning, yeah, like little squares, you know. And, you know, all this stuff comes back and, and that's just a car. But the passion of somebody seeing it and going, the beauty of it, you know. And I think if, you're, if, if you work with your imagination, it doesn't have to be, oh, well, we can't afford to do it. It's like, that's how you get the best design is often working on a budget with what you've got and paint and paper is always the cheapest. Smooshing and sponging. <laughs> no, but you know, they, they, were, they were the joke of the times. But, you know, really the cleverness. I did a kitchen book in, oh God, 2002 or something. And it was all the kitchens were painted kitchens from the shows. I need to find that book. I need to go online and find that book. Oh, they're there. About 2,000 sitting in a garage. But, but the, the ideas are brilliant because you can paint on laminate. You just need the right product. You can paint, you know, on backsplashes. You know, I went to a dinner party once. Somebody said, oh, I, I can't really afford new tile. I said, okay, get me the kitchen sponge. And while they were serving the hors d'oeuvres, I sponged, you know, the squares on the back. We, you, you can't know, make this shit up. This is classic Debbie Travis. What, but all it, all it was was, you know, the base coat was burgundy or something. And then I took it. I said, give me whatever paint you've got. It was a bit of green latex paint. Put the square kitchen sponge in and just make it was a backsplash. <laughs> and yeah. people yeah. was nibbling, watching. And I'm like, see, it's so easy. And it took 20 minutes. And I can't yeah. take it. That's such a good idea. Or also, like, then tack some art up. We're, yeah. like, blessed with all these 3M products, right? There's, like, you can stick anything to anything nowadays, right? Velcro strips. Yeah. All of this is renter-friendly. All of it can pull off. You can hang mirrors with this stuff. I mean, it is yes. crazy. Um, but you can tack up some art that's just, you know, we have Renaissance here, like Goodwill in the States. Like, you don't have to look at the backsplash. You know, there are other options there to be creative. Posters. Get really amazing posters. You know, and 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 put a cup of varnish over the top. Yeah, and of course, you know, TikTok and Instagram are just rife with these, you know, quirky tutorials. But again, it doesn't have to last forever. This is just like a fun way of of being playful. It's not for everybody, but there are options. That's the point, right? Yeah, Debbie Travis was the original TikTok. I mean, she literally was the person who invented these like tips and DIY how tos in your house. I think like, we need to bring back like a, a vintage Debbie Travis channel on TikTok. It's going to blow people's minds, you know? Well, I've got all the footage. We, sh we should. Oh my God, it really would. It would blow people's minds. The cost of doing it is, is editing the pieces. That's the problem. But, you know, when you were making a 30 minute or a one hour show and you had, these were in the really early days and you look, you had a room. So you said, okay, there's the kitchen. I had to fill an hour or 30, I think they started at 30 minutes and then soon went to an hour. 
So it was like, okay, what are we going to do? We've got the kitchen cabinets, we've got the backsplash, we've got the countertops. Let's do checkers on the floor. Let's make a scale on the ceiling. You know, I mean, yeah, it was over the top. And I remember one journalist saying, this mad woman is, is, is going to, you know, decorate my co- toilet seat if she comes to the house. And we, and we did a toilet seat, I remember. You, you were creating footage. It wasn't necessarily about, oh, my God, you know, this is, you know, Architectural Digest. This was about making a television show. So mm-hmm. you needed to take all those elements and, oh, if we didn't have enough, we'd say, okay, we'll stick a lamp in and make a lampshade. Um, and we tried to put it all together. But there was also some genius, and it wasn't just me. There was a, a team of amazing people putting this together. And the pleasure yeah. it gave people, the, the slightly tough side of it was, you know, what took us an hour in television time. Somebody oh, was still yeah. at six months later. Like, yeah. I'm still scraping the cabinets. How yeah. did you do that? <laughs> but this is like, I mean, you have to feed on TV, of course, and like on media, you have to feed a lot of this just for the reader, for the viewer to take away a little piece of information, right? You're not expecting them to do, you know, a celestial ceiling, although I kind of love that idea. Um, But, you know, but maybe there's one tip or something about hardware or something about sponging the backsplash that they're going to walk away with. And so, of course, it's over the top and people will, you know, see this book and be like, that's unrealistic. I'm like, first of all, settle down, right? You know, (laughs) what did you, you know, what did you, you sound like you have, you know, worse problems in your kitchen. Um, but, you know, what did you learn or what's what's a little piece that you can take away? It's not meant to replicate, right? These are examples of other ways of living. And that, that I think, the more that we can expose ourselves to is like you get to learn and just, yeah, open your mind. And I think when you work, because Tommy must work with budgets all the time. So somebody's going to say, okay, this is what we can spend. And mm. if it's not the big bucks of a, a full renovation, Maybe there's something that they've seen, like an armoire or a, you know, a, a, a baker's rack that they say, I really love this and, and that's a third of my budget. Okay, so that's the cleverness of a homeowner or a designer helping them saying, well, okay, we're going to build around that. I, and I know Tommy is a massive fan of flea markets and, you know, we just did a, a podcast about going and it's probably our most popular at the moment, because we went to this market in Italy. So how to find markets when you're going on holiday. If you're going to uh-huh. Mexico, get off the beach and find the oh, local yeah. markets, you know, because you find it such fabulous stuff. And and in Italy, we had all the mangers around the stables and, and all this wood was being piled. So we got the wood cleaned and that became all, every single wardrobe door, cupboard door oh in the place is a manger. And they they all have holes in and people would say, well, what's that? A hole. You know, every meter, there'd be a hole. And I said, well, that's where the chain that chained up the goat. <laughs> and you're like, really? You did that? But the pleasure you get of something that you've found, and, you know, summer's here, get out in the countryside because there's yard sales, there's, there's markets. I was at a trade show in Milan, and I was walking around, and there was a huge stand selling wood you know, like beautiful old patinaed wood. And it was Canadian. It was from the old barns. And I thought, if you right. think I'm buying for my house in Italy, stuff that's <laughs> been shipped all the way here. I know, but, but, I know. But it was, this guy was so popular. I guess these barns, the old red barns, yeah. you know, that you get in the American countryside and Canadian countryside, you know, a lot of them are unrepairable. They've fallen down over the decades. And there are companies now buying all that up and reselling and you just have to they just have to be treated for bugs and things like that and you know i took all our pigsty doors and turned them into headboards <laughs> when do you tell the guests but they're gorgeous you can be the best painter in the world and even i not the best painter in the world but even i cannot reproduce that patina of a 60 year old pigsty door i can't Find that stuff, old barn doors, old flooring, uh, scaffolding. Scaffolding is my favorite. I mean, that's all very intrepid, though, Debbie. You know, it's not for everyone. Not everybody can envision, like, old wood in their house. But the flea marketing and the, you know, there's a reason that decor obsessives obsess about estate sales, flea markets, roadside stands. is because they are rife with treasures. They really are. Yes, they are. And that that kind of thing is like when your crock pot is actually like straight from the 70s and it's a great orange and it cheers you up and you're only making 
soup a couple times a year and you pull it out. It's sort of an event, you know, it's like a, ooh, I get to use this, you know, or you have something really mundane like a chopping board, but it's in the shape of a whale. It's like, that's a little bit of levity. And that's not a huge change to your kitchen, but it's a, it's a sweet way of having something. And maybe instead of putting it back in a cupboard, you're leaning it against your ugly backsplash, you know, like there's ways to enliven everywhere, right? Yeah. And I think, but cost as well. So I, I stayed in a place in Santa Monica, a small hotel that was gorgeous. And I said, oh my God, the wood in here, where'd you get it? It was scaffolding because scaffolding is illegal now. You have to have metal and plastic boards or whatever they are. So those lovely old faded pale gray boards are stacked up and you can buy them in every country in the world because you're not allowed to stand on those, you know, workers. They have to have the new stuff, you know. Where is all that wood gone? It's tables and headboards, isn't it? Exactly. But why <laughs> is that? Not? Did I get that right? What do I win? What do I win? You win a book. But, but you know, if, if you show somebody the photograph or you take them to a hotel that's being done, you know, with that thought of, oh, old wood, old scaffolding, you know, then they, they might get turned off. But when you show them a beautiful picture from your book, because people sometimes can't see the end result. I'm still turned on by old wood. <laughs> totally. I mean. I'm married to one. Just <laughs> laying right there. I had to. I couldn't, I couldn't leave that alone. <laughs> oh, my gosh, you guys. Well, listen, I think. What is extraordinary about the book, Sophie, is that there is space. You have made space for an uncommon approach to the room that is the most common in any home. You know, I mean, we all have kitchens. And I think looking at this book, doing the deep dive into the book, whether each of those kitchens is for you or not, I think that the main takeaway from this conversation today on the podcast is that there is something in every single one of these incredibly authentic and really uncommon spaces that each of us can take away and apply to our own lives and to our own environments. Maybe even, dare I say, the Clorox people might get an idea about how to live more authentically and live bigger and more uncommonly in this very common space. So I want to thank you for that. I think that you are uncommonly wonderful and smart. I'm so glad that you got to meet Debbie and that Debbie got to meet you today. This has been an introduction that I've been dreaming about for a little while. So thank you for being here and thank you for being with us. This has been an amazing conversation. Tommy, thank you. It is a joy to work with you and to cover your work and to hear your ideas. And, and Debbie, such a delight to meet you. And I have a lot of faith in this this scaffolding enterprise that we're putting out there into the <laughs> into the world. I can see the cogs going. I have to find where all that scaffolding wood is. But uh, but yeah, I, I just want to go out and sell my house, get a new kitchen because I think it is the most exciting room to do, and and it's always changing. And I think with the pictures in your book, what people do with the, you know a beautiful book like that is they scour the pages, and you might just see a handle, you might just say, oh look how they did that. And, you know, it's the post-it notes, isn't it, when you're renovating, of all the ideas that gives you such a thrill, saying, well, I want that from page 10 and that from... So, uh, yep, get the book. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Thank you. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.